Now, Isaiah wants to close the prophecy, and it's going to close in the last chapter, the last two chapters, with a a glorious uh, vision of the new heavens and earth and the people of God finally living before him um, in true fellowship and perfection and the nations finally judged. But we see here this other, we could call it a servant song. The the commentators never call this a servant song, um, but I don't see why it shouldn't be called that. Uh, Verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3 show the same person coming. And rather than him being envisaged as, as suffering in that way, we see another side of it, that when he comes from this battle, he is victorious. We see him as God's victorious servant in this uh, battle and in this chapter. You'll see that he has come from a battle, that his garments are dyed in verse 1. And it said there, the splendor of his apparel or the colors. It just means that uh, his apparel is glorious, he's formidable. But in the first sentence of verse 1, dyed garments from Bosra gives the idea that his garments are probably red, and that comes out um, in verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who, tri- who treads the winepress? And um, we're told at the end of verse 3 that his blo- their blood is sprinkled upon his garments. So this is clearly a picture of someone coming back into Israel from a foreign country and he's coming having battled. And he doesn't come with an army. You'll have noticed how that is so emphasized just in these brief verses, how powerful and how dominant that thought is, that he's astonished that there's no others, that there was no one to uphold him or help him. He comes by himself having battled an army, and he comes, and you might have thought that it's a disgusting image in some way, of someone being covered in blood. But this is someone who's gone against a very evil enemy all by himself. And you can see on him as he approaches that he's won. W-O-N. He has won the battle. He comes victorious, having defeated those who are dangerous and evil and who want to destroy the gospel and destroy the people of God. We sung it in Psalm 83 there. Let us destroy the land of Israel. And they make a covenant together to get rid of the nation of Israel and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This person comes and we know who this person is. The servant who has been throughout the book and who has suffered in chapter 53. He appears from the midst of that suffering victorious. You would think he would be wounded, but you see upon him the marks of someone who's triumphed over an enemy, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is verse 1 at the end of verse 1, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can say, I speak in righteousness, and I am mighty to save. You see in the previous chapter, uh, those last two verses, your salvation is coming. His reward is with him. Verse 12, they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. Here is someone returning from redeeming a redemptive battle that he comes as savior. In chapter 59, the first uh, passage we read, you'll see that he put on armor before going to this battle. And you'll recognize the armor from Ephesians 6, that Paul uses this chapter and applies it to the Christian. He put on a helmet of salvation, that he put on armor of uh, righteousness. And it's, it's promised there that the Redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from their transgressions, he will come to them and save them. So when you look at this chapter and you see what looks like a warrior, remember he's a redeeming warrior. This is, this is not someone who's just gone out to slaughter people. He's defending people. 
He's saving his people from the attack of these enemies. And we know it's Christ, the servant, because chapter 59 tells us that it is the Redeemer that will come to Zion. It is the Redeemer that will wear the helmet of salvation. It is the Redeemer who will put on his righteousness as a breastplate over his chest and will go into the land of the enemy and save them. What a wonderful picture of Christ. There are three elements of the short verses here that show something of this victory that Christ accomplished. And I want to put it in three similar headings to you. That he returns from Edom, that he returns from battle, and that he returns from the winepress. You see in verse 1 he comes from Edom. You see in the following verses that he comes from battle. And then Isaiah introduces this picture in verse 3 of the winepress that he trod alone, that he's standing and crushing grapes and bringing about a judgment. So this one comes from Edom, he comes from battle, and he comes from a winepress. Let's see what these mean. He comes from Edom. Who is this who comes from Edom? Now, Edom Edom is a nation, a tribe, that descended from Esau. These are all the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And you'll, you'll know that Esau became an enemy of God, that he became an enemy of Jacob, and that he despised the things of the covenant of God so much that he spoke of it in a completely despicable way to Jacob and said, what is that worth to me? That tribe, that nation, became an enemy of God, descending from their fleshly head, Esau himself, and remained ungodly. They never, as a nation, embraced the God of Israel in any way. That territory was immediately south of Judah. If you look at a map of Israel and Judah, Moab is to the east of those nations. And south of Judah, immediately you have the territory of of Moab, a decent-sized territory that the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, lived. That is what's mentioned here, that place, that place of, of the enemy, that place of the profane, that place of the ungodly, who have no inclination in their heart to embrace the God of Israel or his servant or Messiah in any way. And he, when this person comes from uh, with dyed garments from Bozra. Bozra was the strongest city in, East, in Edom. It was the capital city of that territory. And that's the, the picture here of Christ returning from that nation. That nation set themselves against God's people in various ways. They refused to allow the children of Israel to pass through when the children of Israel were entering the promised land. When they'd come all the way from Egypt and been saved, and many kings heard of the redemption of God for the Israelites, and many kings acknowledged it. But when they were asked, when the king of Edom was asked to allow them to pass through so they could go straight into Israel, the Edomites refused to acknowledge them and allow them to come come through. Later on, David, when proving himself as the king of Israel and as the Lord's anointed and the one who would fight the Lord's battles, he accomplished a great victory against Edom that the scripture brings much focus upon, uh, that is a symbol of God defeating his enemies in Christ. Let me just read to you the beginning of Psalm 60. And this is the introduction superscription at the top of the psalm. Listen to what it says. Set to the lily of the testimony a mitcam of David for teaching when he fought over against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah and Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the valley 
of salt. Now, that's a very notable victory for Israel in the Old Testament. See the number that Israel were up against, that formidable, intimidating enemy that wanted to take the land of God back to them and wanted to destroy the people of God at the Valley of Salt. And Joab went out under David's command, and David's military routed and killed 12,000 Edomites in that battle. So you can see for the people of God, they immediately identify Edom as a symbol of uh, their enemies, as one of the most notable enemies that they have to be very aware of and defend themselves against. Later, the Edomites hindered and worked against the work of restoration when the children of Israel came back from Babylon after uh, this chapter was written by Isaiah. When the people were brought back from captivity under Nehemiah and Ezra, the people of God wanted to rebuild the city and rebuild the church, and God had commanded them to do so, and an edict had gone out allowing them to do so. But the, the Edomites ridiculed the work and worked against it and manipulated situations to hinder that work. And when the Israelites were struggling to rebuild their city and rebuild the church of Christ, we're told in the word of God that the Edomites rejoiced and that they ridiculed the work. So you see, when you put these together, and Isaiah says he's coming up from Edom, that God is showing us here that this is a symbol, a figure of the concentrated enemies of the people of God, the redeemed, and that they need protected from the Edomites, that they need redeemed and saved. He's mighty to save us from the Edomites. Edom then as a, as a, as a nation and Bosra as a city uh, represent the ceaseless enemy of God. The one who is determined to make a covenant and build his tents on the borders of Israel and just take out the people of God. A very strong, formidable enemy that this symbolizes. And just as in other places in Scripture, places like Egypt are given as a a symbol of the great enemy of God. Babylon is used that way too as the great enemy of God. In the New Testament, it's Rome that is the enemy of God. So here in Isaiah 63 verse 1, Edom is that enemy. And this warrior, the king, the anointed Lord Jesus Christ, is coming back from the very heart of that enemy, from Edom and from its capital city, Bosra, all by himself, almost like Samson, who routed uh, 300 Philistines all by himself. Christ is pictured here coming from the very heart of the enemy alone, and he has defeated them all and been victorious over them all. But there's more to Edom than that. That the head of Edom, the spiritual enemies of God, And the enemies of the cross, the head of Edom, is the king of Edom himself. That old serpent, the Bible calls him, Satan. And as interesting as the Edomites are in understanding the past, when Christ is pictured here coming, having defeated the greatest enemy, and delivering his people from him and from his tribes. This is Satan himself. The apostle tells us to to be in no doubt that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And actual Edomites or nations today or institutions today at all, as much as Babylon and Egypt and Edom, the spirit of it is here, And men and women are vitriolic and aggressive in in hatred and spite against the gospel. 
They are not doing that for no reason. And they didn't just grow up in this world and begin to do that for no reason. But they are being animated by someone who is enthroned in the very heart of Edom, sending them out to be malicious against the church. That is Satan himself. Christ, when he gains this victory here, he doesn't do it against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, and neither did Christ. The Roman soldiers, the Sanhedrin, Judas, and then when he builds his church, the Roman Empire, coming against the church of the apostles. No, Paul tells us you don't understand. It's not really these people we're fighting at all. But we wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. When Christ comes back victorious over his enemy in Edom, it is the prince of the power of the air that he has defeated. And we should know this in Isaiah, and we should know it in our Old Testament, that this describes the outcome here in these verses of the long-awaited conflict and contest of the Bible. From the very beginning, that enemy was identified in Genesis 3. And as Christ approaches the cross and his great work of redemption, when the Redeemer comes from Zion, when he says in verse 11 of the previous chapter here, your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him. His work is before him. Christ is conscious, as you see in the Gospels, that it's him he must meet. That the prince of this world is coming, he says. And now is the prince of this world going to be cast out? And then when I am lifted up above him, I will draw all men to myself. I met him in the wilderness, and he left me until an opportune time. And this is the opportune time where he must come and confront this king of Edom, this prince of darkness, this one enthroned in his castle in the city of Bozrah who holds men and women in bondage and in chains to sin and to judgment and to death. And he reigns over them as the God of this world. And Christ must go into Bozra and defeat him and defeat the nation of Edom. So he comes up from Edom. And Edom surely represents these things. Secondly, he comes up from battle. He comes up from Edom and he comes up from battle. Why is your apparel red? And the garments like one who treads the winepress, verse 2. I have trodden it alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. Verse 4. The day of vengeance is in my heart. The year of my redeemed has come. As the Savior servant goes to accomplish redemption and defeat his enemy. Surely this passage, at least initially, is telling us how he returned here from the cross itself. That must be the case. Is this Christ? Is this passage connected to the cross? Is this the Savior returning from battle from the cross? He says in these verses, I am mighty to save Where did he save? At the cross. He says, my own arm brought salvation for me. Where did his arm bring salvation? At the cross. He says, the year of my redeemed has come. Where did he redeem his people and secure that redemption? At the cross. And 
that leaves us in no doubt when we think about that promise from Genesis 3 that he will crush the serpent's head. Now we can think of Christ here coming from battling nations that are against him and judging the nations at the end of the world and these things. But when we see a savior here trampling his enemy and crushing him and defeating him, we have to understand that that crushing, the decisive part of it, took place on the cross. He will bruise your heel, warrior. As you defeat your enemies and trample this winepress, he will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. Now, when did that happen? At the cross. Now, I just want to show you um, that this judgment here and this victory is spoken of in the New Testament as being uh, on the cross itself. Turn, to me, turn with me uh, to three passages. First of all, John 12, for, uh, page 1076. Page 1076. John 12, uh, verse 27. My soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Then look down at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. And now the prince of this world is cast out. And I, if I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. And he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Now see that there. Now is the judgment of this world. There's a judgment to come. And we're going to see that at the end of the sermon. A judgment at the end of time. But Christ is saying here that at the point of the cross, it decides a judgment upon Satan. And Satan as a prince, notice the title as the prince of this world, the death of the cross will cast that prince out. And then Christ will be lifted up and placed on the throne as the king of kings. Now, Christ isn't a prince. He's the king of kings. But there is a prince of this world. And just see there that God is telling us that the death of Christ is what removed this prince and cast him out. Turn then to Colossians 2, page 1179. Page 1179, Colossians 2, verse 14 and 15. Let's read this. He mentions the cross and says that it cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of the decrees against us, accusations, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When, and this is Christ, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, principalities and powers, and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them at the cross. Now, he's speaking about the kingdom of darkness there. He's saying that when Jesus died and secured redemption and fulfilled that requirement, he's saying that this removed the, the handwriting of requirements against his people and he disarmed principalities and powers and he spoiled them, and he made a show of them, and a ridicule of them for their pompous claims. He triumphed over them at the cross. Now, when it says he disarmed the principalities and powers there, disarmed Satan and the demonic world, it literally means to strip them of their armor and their weapons. The word in Greek is just he stripped them. 
They had weapons. They had armor. They, they had proximity. They had access. They were being successful. They had a claim over sinners. They even had a claim over Christians. And they could say, no one's died for them yet. No one's justified them yet. No one's secured their redemption yet. And if you let us at Christ, we'll defeat him. And what Paul's telling us there, the glory of what Christ did on the cross, is that when he's there suffering, when he's there being victorious in that glorious way, that he stripped the demonic world of their weapons and their armor and, and a lot of their power. That the cross did that. Then turn to Hebrews 2, page 1197. Hebrews 2, verse 10, and then verse 14. Hebrews 2, verse 10. It was fitting for Christ, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Then verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who through fear of death were in bondage all of their lives. He suffered, and through that suffering death, he destroyed him who had the power of death and then set free those who were in bondage to him. Now, these are wonderful things for us as uh, Christians this morning. That Christ in Isaiah 63 is returning from a battle and the New Testament shows us that that battle on the cross was a real battle. We're not to question here, does this refer to the cross? The battle on the cross is the one that matters the most. And that is where the prince was dethroned from his position. That is where the prince was disarmed and his his armor and weapons were removed. And that is where Christ destroyed him and removed his authority and removed the power he had over the death of every redeemed Christian, so that Satan has no power over a Christian, no power over that temptation, no authority over it, and no power over our death at all. The things that Satan had, that he rightfully had in that sense, over fallen sinners, Christ went into Edom and met him face to face, And he slaughtered Satan on the cross. That's what we have to see here. He comes up mighty, covered in blood, covered in red, having trodden a winepress of judgment, having been in a contest and conflict in the heart of the enemy city. And when you see that all over him, you see that the enemy is lying in his capital city, fatally wounded, Disarmed of all of his power. Disarmed of his authority. You see why I preach these things to you. These are things we must know and think about and rejoice in. How that affects our Christian life, knowing these things. Christ went there. And on the cross, spiritually, as his father judges him, he's judging Satan. Satan is there. Satan is interested Now he's coming, Christ says. The prince of this world is coming, he warns the three disciples. And he has no part with me. And he says, pray that you do not fall into his temptation. I have prayed that I would not. He's coming. And in that three hours of darkness, Satan unveils himself in a way unseen in history. Before the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ goes into the darkness into the city of the enemy. He goes outside the camp, Hebrews 13 tells us, 
outside the city of God that Christ must leave his city and the light and glory of it and go outside over the border into the land of hell itself, into the place where Satan is in control in that sense, in a subordinate sense to God, but where Satan has free reign. He meets Satan on his own ground. He meets him in the land of curse, in the land of darkness. He meets him while he's pinned and he's humiliated and weak when his father isn't protecting him in the same way and his mind and body are just open to the evil and the venom and the violence of Satan. He meets Satan on his own ground. He doesn't summon Satan to heaven and fight him there. He meets Satan while he's being damned for sinners. And Satan is near him, as he was near Adam. And he said to Adam and Eve, oh, you can't eat of all these trees. Did God really say this? That was nothing compared to what he did to Christ. You are the son of God. You bear this curse. Now you're mine. Where is your father? You can save them another way. You will never prevail. Look what the church has done to you. Your own disciples have fled. Most of them have betrayed you. Even I have your disciples. I have Peter in one hand and Judas in the other hand. And he is at the Lord Jesus Christ. While Christ supposedly has no weapons. But what were Christ's weapons? A sword? The power of his Godhead? No, what were his weapons? Salvation and righteousness. He defeated him passively, even though he was active. Christ didn't defeat him by meeting him there and aggressively attacking him in that sense. Christ defeated him by receiving the curse for his people and fulfilling the covenant and atoning for sin and having the rightful reward of his own kingship and throne. Christ did that and Satan just watched him do it and Satan could do nothing. The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, salvation and redemption. Christ defeated Satan that way. Not through naked aggression, but through saving love. Something Satan could never understand. And that confounds him and confuses him. That he loves Peter. That he loves Mary. That, that he loves Mary Magdalene. Satan cannot understand. He doesn't see the threat of the saving love and righteousness of Christ. This all confounds Satan. Dethrones him. Disarms him. And takes away his power of death. And understand that, brothers and sisters, that when Christ is there and he is passive, he's receiving this from his Father. It's coming to him, and that way he's passive. Let's not make the mistake at all of thinking his mood is passive, that he's passive in the wrong way, because he's very active while he's receiving that. He knows what the battle will take and he knows it's about Satan and he is actively bearing these sufferings. He's actively dying. He's actively receiving the wrath. He's actively receiving the physical pain. That when the serpent raises its head to bite him in the foot and to poison him in this way, Satan can only reach his foot because Christ was already bringing his foot down on Satan's head, on the head of the serpent. That's why Christ was bitten, because Christ was willing to lay his foot and go towards the serpent and to stand on it. And the price he paid for that was he was bitten. But let's never see Christ, though we speak of him in his humiliation and weakness. Paul says he was crucified in weakness. Yes, relatively speaking. That the Son of God had never appeared so weak. But we don't look at Christ on the cross being weak. He is crushing the serpent's head. And every blow of body and soul that he receives, he goes towards it. He, it, he does this voluntarily. His will is involved. He does it volitionally. He's in battle here 
as someone striding and active. There's no one catching him out here or wounding him unless he actively is allowing that. And just know that, brothers and sisters, know that about your Savior. That he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself and I take it up whenever I please. Not not Satan and no one surrounding the cross took Jesus' life from him. Jesus gave up his life actively. There is nothing anyone was doing to him that took the control out of Christ's hands. He laid down his life at his own pace. And every blow that hit him, he first said, I will. He said, strike me with the blow. Do it. He was not caught off guard. And he did all this actively, as we see in this passage. Now, he came up from Edom, and he came up from battle, having destroyed the devil in those three ways. Before I move to the last thing, there are three effects of the victory of that battle that are important for us to understand and that you need to know in your Christian life this morning. Three things uh, that Christ removed and destroyed that now have no power over you. The power of Satan's accusations, the power and dominion of sin, and the power and dominion of Satan himself. The power of his accusations. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Satan is the accuser of the brethren, the Bible tells us. He's an accuser. He's a lawyer. He's an advocate. He's extremely intelligent. He understands law. He understands guilt. And he accuses the brethren. He accuses the people of God. And he stands beside them, condemning them. And Christ says to him, how dare you? Who can bring an accusation against one of my people? It is God who has justified them. And nothing shall separate them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We saw last time that the guilt is removed. You do not have that condemning guilt on you, Christian. You accumulate a kind of guilt as a Christian when you break God's law. And I'm not going to go into any list right now. We, you know what is in these things. And a kind of guilt is accumulated and it needs repented of. It needs put right between you and your father. It can be very destructive. But let us never forget that there is never the guilt of condemnation upon any Christian. To be utterly condemned... And Satan has no business going near a Christian and saying, let's speak about your sin. I'm going to accuse you and condemn you. Christ paid for the sin. Christ will sanctify the sinner. Christ may even chastise his brethren. But he says to Satan, this person has nothing to do with you. This person is mine. And no one can bring a charge against God's elect. So remember that as you live. Free yourself from living in that way before Christ. And pray for protection from the devil's accusations against you. The power and dominion of sin also is not upon you. Christ broke that at the cross when he crushed Satan's head. He removed and dethroned the power and the dominion over you that sin had. Romans 6, sin shall not have rulership or dominion over you anymore. You were servants and slaves of sin, Paul says, but now we are slaves of righteousness. Reckon yourself then dead to sin and make no provision for the flesh and for the lust of the body. Don't relate to sin, it's a dead man, he says. Christ died unto sin once, he says. Now you are servants of righteousness. Satan will come to you, find the flesh that's still in you, warring against the spirit, and Satan will tell you, sin is native to you, you can't stop sinning, it's natural for you to sin, and sin is stronger than you. 
Sin is stronger than you being in the spirit in Christ. So you might as well give up and, and, and lie down and let it defeat you. No, not at all. It shall not have dominion over you. For Christ broke Satan at the cross and the bondage that we were in sin. We are freed from being ruled by sins. Let us walk in the spirit and we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Sin can be mortified and defeated because Christ is victorious. Christ is the victor and the master. Sin is not. Sin is a squatter. Sin pretends it can control and it's very proud and loud but it has no authority over you at all. And he delivered us from the power and dominion of Satan. Of his accusations of the dominion of sin and of Satan himself. He has no claim over us anymore. Christ bought us. We are redeemed and he paid for us. And Satan does not own us anymore. So much so that John says at the end of the Bible in 1 John 5 that those who walk in this way and who walk in Christ, the wicked one cannot touch him. Hear that? The wicked one cannot touch him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, the other apostle says. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Hear that. Satan is a liar and a murderer. And he tells you that he has a relationship with you. And that he has a rightful place in your life. And he can visit your home whenever he pleases. He can't. He tells you, I'm inside you. I have access to your mind. We've been friends for a long time. You have to listen to me. You can't avoid me. That is a lie. He who keeps himself, the wicked one, cannot touch him. And resisting him in Christ, in focusing on Christ, and immersing yourself in the things of Christ, and the grace of Christ, resist him and he flees. Because Christ rebukes him. And Christ puts a wall of protection around you that the devil cannot penetrate properly. Now, Satan has, uh, Christ has Satan on a leash and he gets near churches and he gets near Christians and Christ even uses that to try and test a Christian or a church. But he is under Christ's control. Christ has chained him. Christ has bound the strong man and disarmed him in his house. And he has no right to be near us and inside of us. He told Peter, pray that you would not enter into temptation. We enter it. Satan cannot enter us in that way. He's not allowed to. Christ keeps us from that. So let's not, either through wanton abandonment or through our own ignorance because we don't understand God's law and word, let's not play around with things that then Satan can use. He can find one little area of disobedience and just draws away a bit from Christ. Then he adds another one and he, 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 he subtly tempts us before he can get us in a sin that will really hurt. Remember that even the smallest thing, identify the serpent immediately. Don't eat the fruit. Don't go near the fruit. Every other fruit in the garden is yours. We find that ridiculous today. Well, the slightest thing that you say, well, this one time, you've given Satan room to maneuver. But remember, he has no power and dominion over you and me. And there's not a welcome sign at the front of our church that says, you are welcome here. He has no place here. He makes his way in, but it's through Christ that he must be resisted. And he will flee and leave us until he sees a chink in the armor again and comes back. See this here. Edom destroyed. He comes up from Edom and comes up from a battle 
And that battle has real consequences for a Christian. The power of his accusations, the power of sin, the power and authority of Satan, all broken by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say one thing to close uh, this for us. He returns from a wine press of judgment. From Edom, a battle, but a wine press of judgment. He treads it alone. His own anger sustains him. He tramples his enemies in his fury. The blood is sprinkled upon his garments, and so on. This wine press is used by the prophets as a picture of the final judgment. And it's brought back in the book of Revelation for that reason several times as a vivid and startling arresting picture of the Son of Man coming to judge the world and judge the nations. He went to Edom. He fought his battle. The decisive victory against Satan was achieved. Satan is wounded. Satan Satan is confined. He's The kingdom of darkness is reserved in chains until the judgment. There's only certain things they can do as Christ builds his church. But that's temporary. At the end of time, that kingdom and that figurehead of that kingdom will be finally judged and destroyed utterly in the lake of fire. And all those who call him my God and who serve him and who remain joyfully in his bondage of death. This is promising Israel and promising the Christian church that the day of vengeance, as Isaiah calls it vividly here, comes soon. And though a decisive blow has been struck, Christ is judging the nations. His feet are in this grape press, this trough. And there is coming a day soon where it will be finalized. And all the juice that comes out of those grapes in the trough will be put in cups that the Bible says are the cups of trembling and of the fury of the Lord and he will make the nations drink it. Our God will come in judgment. It sounds unimaginable. It sounds foreboding. And it is for the nations. But we need to know what this world world needs. Look at it. Look at the state it's in. Look at the evil. Most of it's hidden from our eyes. The trafficking and the prostitution and uh, the child abuse. the the murders. Just think about what's going on in all the countries of the world just in the past week. Should God not look at it and be filled with a fury to judge it and purify it? Well, the day of vengeance is in Christ's heart. And it was in his heart as he judged Satan on the cross. But Christ is working this out in the last 2,000 years. He's treading this winepress. And he's judging the nations And when kings rise up, he squashes them like grapes. And the grapes become fermented and they become intoxicated and he forces the evil nations and empires to drink this potent judgment that he brings. Christ is doing that. He did it to Rome. He did it to an an Islamic empire. He did it to the Nazi empire. He's done it to many empires right now, maybe even in this nation. Maybe in Russia, maybe in Europe. The proud and the ungodly that rail themselves in atheism against God. And Christ is progressively just beginning to squash these grapes. And the outcome will be that people will drink and taste of the fruit of their own sin and they will be judged. Christ is doing it. The church doesn't need to be afraid or unbelieving or despondent in this day. Let's not be despondent. Christ is reigning and he is doing this right now to these nations around us. And he's bringing his redeemed from the nations I mentioned in the prayer. He's bringing these in and building his church. 
And we look in our nations in the West and we say, oh, Christ is losing and he needs our help and the church is so weak. Really? It's not the church that's weak. The visible church is weak. The true church of Jesus Christ is not weak. And we say, if only all these people would be in the church. Well, these people aren't part of the church. They're Edomites and they hate God. Why do you want them in the church? Do we want them to be saved? Yes. If they will be saved, yes. But we can't look around and say that Christ is losing. He's not. He is judging the nations. And very soon, he will appear in glory like this. At the end of time. And as the book of Revelation says, that he has his garments dipped in blood and he has a sword that is called the word of God and he has a name that no one knows but himself and it is written upon his thigh, faithful and true. Our Savior is coming to judge this world. Let the earth tremble. Let us be shocked. Let every Christian here take account of this and watch for his coming and not be sluggish. Be careful and watch and look for his coming. Jesus is coming to condemn the nations and he will sort all of this out that's against the church today. He's doing it. He will convert these people in these nations that I mentioned. He will build his church so that it's strong. He will judge other nations. And at some point soon, the true Christian Reformed Church, its witness will fill the earth and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and the nations will bring their tribute to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews will be converted. Israel will be turned to God. And Paul says it will be life for the world. So as shocking as that judgment is for any man or woman, for the Christian, it's comforting. And we long for it. We want that day. We want him to come. We want to see his gospel cover the earth. And we want him to come and sit on the throne and open the books. And every child that has been abused and every woman that has been abused and every man that has been abused. On that day, there will be a reckoning from those books. And those who have done these things, and who think that they have got away with them, will be cast into the depths of the lake of fire, and they will receive the punishment due to these things that they have done. Do we not want that? Even so, come, come, Lord Jesus. May God bless his word to our souls. Let us pray.